Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History on the New Books Network. Following the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1911, two antipodal ideologies vied for control of China's military. One, advanced by Sun Yat-sen, leader of the Kuomintang, or KMT, maintained that the military was little more than an organ of the KMT party apparatus. As such, the Chinese army was a party army, beholden to the KMT's will and subservient to KMT demands. Opposing the party army ideology was a cadre of nationalistic, cosmopolitan Chinese officers who sought to fashion the army into a professional, technically proficient, and independent institution, loyal not to any one party, but to the Chinese nation. The dynamic of this previously unexamined struggle is the subject of Eric Setsakorn's erudite study, The Rise and Fall of an Officer Corps, The Republic of China Military, 1942-1955, published by the University of Oklahoma Press. Eric, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, so now, before we get into the book, what sparked your interest in Chinese military history and in the 20th century Republic of China military in particular? Well, it's a great time. This is a, a topic that I think has been um, discussed on the margins sort of of World War II and of sort of this old, early Cold War period for quite a while. And I think it's a great time to be looking at it. There's a lot of wonderful resources that have become available in the past. 10, 15 years, not only here in the United States, whether that be records or archives or memoirs, uh, but also in East Asia. There's a a great number of young scholars working in East Asia in places like Taiwan, Japan, Hong Kong, on all sorts of issues related to what we think of as World War II, but the, the Pacific War in general, that is the sort of period beginning in the 1930s, all the way into the 1950s when sort of there was a lot of conflict, changes in government, really establishing many of the institutions and templates that we see continuing through to today uh, in the 21st century. And so that was uh, when I was in in graduate school looking for a topic, immediately jumped out at me. Uh, Also, I was in the United States Army myself from 2001 to 2005 and spent, um, in those four years, I spent three of those in the East Asia sort of theater uh, in Korea and in Okinawa. So I, I just felt this was an area that was uh, definitely important, important for sort of a lot of current uh, debates, current issues that we we face in East Asia, security related, and also for uh, for history, a, a great topic that could be studied very well, I think, at this point in time. Yeah, I think it's definitely, and and the Pacific War generally is underappreciated, uh, especially in the United States, and uh, you know specifically uh, relations with China. Yeah, and I, I think the United States has a real critical role to play. Uh, not just because the U.S. has such a an impact both both in the fighting in the Central Pacific, um, very overlooked in Southeast Asia, sort of the the Burma campaign, but also the one of the issues that we face is that you know be careful what we wish for. Definitely, the Chinese government has a lot of interest in um, you know promoting nationalism, promoting sort of um, opposition sometimes to Japan, and history could be utilized sometimes unfortunately, uh, in sort of political purposes, and that being sort of outside scholars looking at things from a different perspective 
uh, we here in the United States or other parts of the world, Europe, Canada, for example, can add a, a less politicized, uh, perhaps more a neutral in tone to look at some of these issues. And I think we, we greatly benefit that sort of historical discussion by being involved. Yeah, undoubtedly. Uh, so the focus of Rise and Fall is uh, the period between 1942 and 1955, uh, a period which you argue is unique in Chinese military history. Uh, why is that? Yeah, a couple reasons. Um, and I should say just uh, to caveat, um, disclaimer that I am uh, I do work for the United States Army Center of Military History, uh, as well as adjuncting in several places here in the D.C. area. But these are my own views, my personal views, and are not reflective of U.S. Army policy or DOD policy. And I say that because I, I think that one of the big issues that really attracted me to this story was military partnerships is a, a hot topic today, uh, both here in D.C. and around the world. How does the U.S. Army interact with foreign militaries? This can be you know, ranging from Afghanistan, where the U.S. is directly involved in setting up you know, schools, new institutions to sort of uh, army building is one of the sort of buzzword phrases. It's all the way to on the other side of the coin, you know, do we uh, work with our allies to, you know, supply equipment, supply training, uh, whether that be in East Asia, the case of, you know, Japan, uh, one of the partners on the F-35 program, definitely a piece of high-tech military equipment. How close do we get? And I was, I was drawn to this topic because I found that you know, the Republic of China, that is uh, the ROC, which was the government of um, uh, governing the mainland, so to speak, from up until 1949. That was really one of the first cases where the United States, I thought, had been deeply, deeply involved in things like training, uh, both for officer enlisted men, things like equipping, uh, bringing in new equipment, new doctrines, new technologies to really shape a military force uh, in the U.S. image in a lot of ways for the first time. Yes, the U.S. had supplied Lend-Lease to allies in World War II, um, both you know, uh, the USSR, Britain. But in that case, we really weren't changing the institution. Uh, we're supplying a tank, we're supplying an aircraft, but we're not retraining people. We're not sort of, you know, affecting their thinking of what it means to be a military officer, a military service member. That is... Um, that is really what struck me as this case in 42 to 55. Um, the U.S. is deeply involved for the first time in setting up uh, a new sort of a military institution that uh, in our own image. But at the same time, uh, there's officers in China. And this is a, a bilateral story where the U.S. has policies and plans. But also, in many cases, it's young officers, uh, young military leaders in the Republic of China who are engaging with the U.S. And there's a negotiation process, sort of informal shaping, uh, coordinating, uh, so that it doesn't come out looking just like the U.S. Army. It's a very distinctive, unique um, military that emerges, but it also reflects a lot of problems that we currently face. I mean, how do you how do you engage with allies to get things done, such as in World War II? I mean, the goal is to fight the Japanese. How do you engage where both sides have to work together? Those, those issues will continue as long as militaries have to work together. And I think that history can add a lot of perspective and depth to that study, certainly in, in East Asia, where the U.S. continues to be deeply involved with, you know, in Korea, in Japan, uh, with Taiwan to some extent. Um, you know, the big issue for the future is Vietnam. You know, what does the U.S. military do in Vietnam? Uh, a very politically sort of fraught 
relationship, a historically fraught relationship, but at the same time, we have a great deal of uh, sort of policy similarities. Uh, and so this is something that I, I hope uh, my research, I was I always had one eye on the past and living here in DC, I guess it's a, it's always one eye on what's the debate in the beltway? You know, what are people currently uh, thinking about, worried about? And that was really driving my research into this, this area. Yeah, I think, you know, especially for a popular audience, what's striking about this is the kind of ideological struggle that you highlight between, uh, you know, what's the military's role in society? You know, is it an instrument for applied violence? Is it apolitical? Is it something that's run by technocrats who, you know, is it a national institution? Or, you know, is it a forge for shaping model citizens and a particular political ideology? Um, and you brought up this idea of, you know, homegrown, professionally minded Chinese officers. Um, can you talk a little bit about how they originate and also maybe a little bit about their foil, the, the party army and the political officers? Because that probably strikes Western sensibilities as anachronistic or odd or, you know, just uh, completely, you know, anathema. Yeah, your, your question is a great one, I think, highlighting a number of these strands that really in, interact. Uh, the first one being, you know, how does the military conceive its own role, its own place in a society? And I, I think every society, every every nation to extent has to discuss and articulate these. And military officers, we might think uh, their job is to, you know, salute, move out. Well, they definitely have perspectives, perspectives on, you know, what is appropriate. Uh, that is, you know, if you're a military officer, is it appropriate uh, you know, here in the United States to use the military for strike breaking or to operate the railways. Um, in the 19th century, that was that was common, not so much today. Is the role of the officer to be very uh, professionally minded, focused on sort of big wars? Well, in that case, you're not able to be used for disaster relief recovery, for example. Uh, that's, a, that's a concern. The, the other question is, you know, political authority in that uh, in the United States, we have, you know, Two, two major parties, they transition in power. Uh, but in other areas of the world, uh, particularly in China in the early 20th century, the roles and relationships of sort of military power and political power were unclear. Uh, if we think about China, the, the Qing dynasty had fallen in, in 1912, mostly due to the uh, military uh, revolt of some of these very well-educated patriotic, so to speak, uh, officers who sought, you know, to change the government into a, a republic. But these sort of, you know, ties, connections, how is this supposed to work, took decades to really figure out. And this idea of a party army, which was so powerful to, to China up until today in the PRC, the People's Republic of China, really originates in the, in the 1920s when you have Sun Yat-sen, the leader of the Kuomintang, receiving aid, assistance, advice from the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union, which had a very different model of political power and military power, which was you have a red army, uh, a military force that is loyal to the political party, not to the nation, so to speak, as a whole. And that was really one of the, the genesis of this idea uh, in China and that, that party army idea where you have a a military that is loyal to a political leader has continued on both in the Chinese Communist Party uh, up till today. Um, but it was really the dominant strain of thought in the KMT, the, the Kuomintang, in the 1930s. But it was never 
it was never an absolute idea. Military officers always thought, you know, why do we have these political officers kind of sitting in the back of the room watching what we do? Why do we have to get sort of, uh, you know, sign off on a lot of our orders for training, for objectives? Uh, why can't we, you know, be military officers? That is the subject matter experts in how to train, equip, lead our forces in, you know, looking for a combat role. And that really came to a head uh, during the 1940s when you had the U.S. with a very different tradition uh, accentuating this debate. And a lot of younger officers looking to the U.S. for support and saying, yeah, we're not, we shouldn't be devoting our, our gaze, our vision to our political leaders. We need to be, you know, we're fighting for the nation. We're experts in, you know, the application of violence, so to speak. Our orientation is outward, in this case, fighting Japan uh, during the 1940s. And so these two sort of strands, you know, this larger sort of civil military debate of, you know, what should the military do? Uh, what role should it have? And then the, the idea of, you know, what is the direct links of political authority were really being, you know, worked out uh, in journals, in discussions, in, you know, sort of the, the normal collegial debate that most professions have. Uh, and I, I think the U.S. had a, a key role there, but it wasn't the dominant role. One of the things I really try to stress in my book is that this is a, a very articulate, educated, opinionated officer corps in China uh, that has their own views and is not just simply um, mirroring U.S. Uh, thoughts or guidance. Uh, They're definitely coming up with their own distinctive solutions to this this enduring debate. Right. And I, and uh, you use Sun Li Zhen, who rises to prominence uh, during World War II and then after World War II. He's kind of the paradigmatic uh, example of the professional-minded Chinese officer. Can you talk a little bit about him and how he exemplifies this kind of organic growth within the Chinese officer corps? Yeah, this is, um, I have to confess, this was, uh, you know, my earlier ideas were were much more of this, you know, themes and concepts and sort of intellectual discussion. And sort of my my friends were like, boy, if you could just give us a person that we can kind of look at it, uh, an example of this trend, this, you know, how did this work? Because for someone who's not interested in maybe military history or Chinese history or, you know, World War II, these kind of intellectual debates within the military can be a little bit dry, and I fully understand that. So I, I found this figure, luckily, uh, Sun Li Jin, uh, Sun Li Ren, uh, who I think exemplifies a lot of this. And this is a, a man who was born sort of at that, right at the end of the Qing dynasty, born in the late um, uh, 19th century, and sort of rose to sort of a military role uh, while these issues were, were coming up for debate and discussion. He he'd received a fine education. Uh, both in in China, in Beijing, but also attended VMI. This is one of the things about the early 20th century. It was a a very open, globalized world. And he attended VMI, had studied here in the United States, had issues, though, going back to China and getting a job, so to speak, in this party army. Because if you're in a a military system that is loyal to a political party, a trust, sort of loyalty, uh, in a lot of ways, subservience to your political leaders is very important. And he was an unknown. He was an enigma. So he's kind of on the sidelines, even though he had you know, sort of a great um, education and training, both in the U.S. and in Beijing. During the war, though, he rapidly rises through the ranks. He's seen as uh, by many folks that is both inside China as you know, kind of what we think of as the best and brightest. He's you know, patriotic. He's energetic. He's well-spoken. 
Uh, the Americans like working with them. Uh, the cover of my my book is a photo of he's on the far left and Joseph Stilwell is reviewing the troops. He's seen as sort of, if anyone's going to be this example of someone who's, you know, he hasn't cut political, you know, deals in the past. He's not seen as anyone's sort of uh, lackey. He's someone who's committed to the military as sort of a national force and institution. I thought he really exemplifies this sort of strand coming to the fore. You know, the flip side of that is uh, he he rises in rank and position, but it's never that that it is a bumpy road and that during during the war, Americans really push him forward as someone they can work with who's if someone who's efficient. But he has a little bit of a, a hiccup in that 45 to 49 period where, you know, he doesn't have the connections with Chiang Kai-shek or other senior leaders. If you're a little bit of an outsider, how much do people trust you? And he comes back to the fore. <coughs> excuse me. One of the reasons the, the book continues past 49, this sort of great divide in a lot of Chinese history. He reemerges on Taiwan because you have military necessity. Right? The KMT is now... The military has fled to Taiwan, uh, kind of a siege mentality. You need his military skills. Suddenly, Jen is someone who knows how to train troops, how to deploy troops. If you're going into a battle, you don't want some political flunky. You want someone who can get the job done in an efficient manner. He's the guy. Slowly but surely, though, the same pattern emerges, though, that sort of KMT loyalists are able to marginalize him, Chiang Kai-shek's son, and eventually... Excuse me. He does fall from power. In 55, there's sort of a trumped up charge and he's placed under house arrest up until 1988. So pretty, um, pretty kind of sad. And it was he uh, in, in did his association with Stillwell because you mentioned in the book that, you know, Stillwell kind of praises him. Did that also taint him or was it really just the fact that he had never cultivated KMT party ties that, you know, impeded his forward advancement? The, the relationship during the war is really, really fascinating because uh, he is definitely seen as Stillwell, by Stillwell, as someone they can, they can work with. But at the same time, Chinese officers are always very cognizant of, uh, we're not part of the American army. <laughs> we're not, you know, we are allies. We are not uh, taking our orders directly from him. So it's, they, they respect each other, uh, but there is sort of a, a coolness. Uh, you know, one of the issues is, you know, if you're in a, a situation where he was in training in India uh, during part of that time, uh, training to retake Burma. And so he's just not part of sort of the larger sort of Chinese military strategy. So he's got some autonomy. He's got better supplies coming in from the Americans. But part of the flip side of that is, though, he's isolated from sort of the larger, larger debates like many of these younger officers are. It's it's great to be, you know, these young officers at the front, they're, they're fighting the war, but at the same time, they're not part of sort of the elite uh, discussion in the capital. So you see kind of a, a mix here. Um, you know, people have to make compromises, have to make choices. And he sort of likes to be a little bit on his own, perhaps. One of the examples I give in the book is that in 1950 in Taiwan, you know, when they have to set up, kind of almost establish the military again. You know, he sets up most of the military training camps almost on the other side of the island, as far away from the capital as you can get, which is, I mean, if you're a professional soldier, hey, leave me alone. I don't want VIPs driving through every week to check on the troops. We need to get to training. We need to get things done. Smart idea militarily. Politically, though, 
maybe you need to, uh, you know, be a little more, yeah, closer to your boss, you know, let people see what you're doing. Uh, so that kind of, that's a, there's a tension there and there's no right or wrong answer. And it's just his, his solutions in the long run, you know, military forces are important. They are uh, powerful, especially in, in East Asia during the 20th century. They have often been uh, very disproportionately large, well-funded, but they are not, uh, in most cases, the political leaders. And military forces have to operate within a political and social context and be aware of that. And the sort of the pushback, so to speak, by the KMT, the Kuomintang, uh, once they felt a little more secure, uh, to sort of eliminate his presence uh, again, the sort of ebb and flow, this idea of professionalism within the military, or a party army—that is, an army that's sort of more securely under one political force—that uh, ebb and flow came and went during the '40s and '50s. And unfortunately for him, after 1955, when the tide went out, uh, he was sort of left standing uh, as sort of a, a negative example that could be pushed to the side. So, once I go back to. Uh the contact with the, uh, you know, first Stilwell, then Wedemeyer, um, and just kind of the entire United States military, I guess, program, if you'd call it, or structure, organization. Um, what did uh, the professional officers like Sun Lijun, uh, what did they admire about the American system? And uh, the flip side, I guess, what did the Americans hope to accomplish by, uh, you know, what you describe, what Wedemeyer described as, you know, the army building project? Yeah, that that was a... One of the challenges, um, you know, during the World War II period was that there was, especially at the beginning of the war, very high hopes that, you know, the U.S., oh, you know, China has been fighting the good fight against the Japanese for for years on their own. If only we can get them a little bit of uh, equipment, a little bit of training, a little bit of support, uh, they'll be able to not just maybe tie down huge numbers of Japanese uh, soldiers, but maybe push back against Japan and really make China a front in the war. And you, you see this oftentimes, you know, FDR had sort of a romantic attachment to, to China. Uh, you see some of the programs, which in retrospect, you know, basing B-29s out of China in, I think it was 43 and 44, just didn't work. Uh, one of the realities was that Stilwell, when he sort of shows up, has a lot of uh, hopes, but he doesn't have a lot of tools in his toolkit, so to speak. Military supplies are slow in coming. Uh, really, the only place after Burma is taken to train Chinese forces is in uh, northeast India at a place called Ramgar, the Ramgar Training Center, where the U.S. has to kind of, you know, adapt a lot of their own techniques to you're getting Chinese recruits. But it's a, you know, keep in mind, China has been at war now for many years. Uh, a lot of recruits are maybe older or younger than than, you know, sort of the U.S. age range. I mean, in the U.S., if you're drafting soldiers in 1942, you just say. We want people from 18 to 25 in good health. Um, it's not like that in East Asia. You kind of take what you can get. And if they're 16, uh, you know, you take them. If they're 40, you take them. If they have some sort of disease, you take them and hope you can cure the disease. Uh, and so it's really sort of the the practicalities come up against this mission. It should be said still well. One of the things that struck me is that, you know, there's a great discrepancy still has a tremendous reputation in the United States, um, most famously because of the book. Uh, was it Barbara Tuckman Stillwell in the American? Oh, yeah, still in American. Yeah, the American experience in China. Winner of the Pulitzer yeah. Prize in 1972. Uh, you know, a, a 
very thick book, which is on many bookshelves. I don't know how much it's read anymore, but that book has shaped this image of, you know, Vinegar Joe. He's the truth talker. He went out there, there and, you know, he, he speaks to the folks and just he's plain spoken American. Of course, this is written in the context of Vietnam, trying to critique sort of implicitly the American effort in Vietnam, where we you know, work sometimes through intermediaries. In real life, the story is a little bit different. Stillwell is, I mean, he's Vinegar Joe is, I mean, that nickname suits him. He's not exactly the most uh, happy-go-lucky kind of person. His relations with a lot of figures, both Chinese or British, are, are quite strained. Uh, he's, in my assessment, he has an excellent idea on how to train troops. Uh, and that, that's great if you're running uh, Fort Benning or you know Fort Sill during the war. But he's not as great at sort of the diplomatic aspects and making sort of an inclusive coalition. Uh, so, I mean, that's really the reason for his uh, eventual, so to speak, firing and replacement with Albert Wedemeyer, who is, Wedemeyer is much more a staff general. He's someone who is comfortable in meetings. He is someone who is very well trained, um, went to the German uh, Kriegs Academy uh, before World War II, which is, you know, highly respected school. So he's He's sort of an academic general. He's, you know, doesn't roll over to the British or the Chinese, but he has a much different way of structuring things. He he finds that over time, the idea is that maybe the U.S. And one of the issues that the U.S. I think worked towards the solution was we don't want to be ever seen as um, calling the shots. If we want to help the Chinese military, we need to help them train their officers. So set up a school system. We need to help them get. Uh, more supplies, so help their supply system, whether that's local purchasing of food. Um, you know, for, you know, if you local purchase vegetables, maybe you can get rid of some of the diseases because they'll have better nutrition. Um, integrate more artillery, but don't you know maybe coordinate with airstrikes, but don't get too deeply involved in the day-to-day activities because that's just asking for a lot of headaches, and that's asking for a lot more work than I think uh, the small American staffs could do. And I think that's really that solution, kind of what during the Cold War, you'd have a MAGS, military assistance advisory groups. The solution the Americans kind of worked out in China, I think, was adopted in many cases in the, the late 40s, 50s, in places like Korea, uh, Japan, later in, in South Vietnam. Don't take over the military. You know, don't turn it into some sort of, uh, you know, dependent force, but try to enable it. Uh, Try to what do they call it? Force multipliers. Yeah. Try to make it perform more efficiently. But at the end of the day, you have a different military uh, belonging to the host nation, uh, which is they they need to be running their own show. You can't take it over, even if you might be tempted to. I think that was always kind of Stillwell's temptations. Well, if I was just controlling this directly, it'd be more efficient. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but you got to work through that institution to make them perform better. Uh, on their own, uh, with them calling the tune. Yeah, I think uh, I definitely that seems to be the blueprint we followed uh, ever since. That was one of the most interesting things I found about the book was was kind of having it dawn on me that oh yeah, actually this this is the bu- the blueprint because it seems that we tweak it a little bit here and there, but you know even in Western Asia and the Middle East, you know, kind of doing the same sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a there's a certain logic to that. That I mean, this is you know you look at China in, in the early 40s, and then even in Taiwan in the in the 50s when this sort of was reinvigorated, 
what are your constraints? Well, you don't have a lot of manpower, you know, so, so how do you work with a host military and you have, you know, maybe a couple hundred guys. I mean, Stillwell has just a, he has some rank and he has a lot of cool titles, but he really just doesn't have a lot of people working for him. You don't have a lot of, you know, boots on the ground is the current phrase. So how do you do that? Yeah, you've got some air power that can help you. You've got some supplies that can help you. So, you know, how do you leverage equipment, air power, um, you know, sort of training at schools? How do you leverage that into making a military, a new military force, which will be aligned with you? I mean, that's the same thing we face, I think, in a lot of ways. You look at Afghanistan. I mean, you don't want to deploy a whole lot of combat forces. You don't want Americans on the front lines. So how can American, you know, logistics, close air support controllers, uh, and maybe school teachers back in a, a military academy, how can they make things more efficient? And it's, a, you know, it's, it's easy to say. The hard part is doing it. The hard part is, you know, there's not one big meeting where everybody agrees. Uh, it's, it's hundreds of meetings. And it's convincing, you know, junior officers that, you know, hey, uh, maybe I shouldn't take, you know, bribes to just sit around my post. Maybe I should, you know, I have to have some idea of being a professional. What does that mean to be responsible to my soldiers? to the institution. And it's slow. I mean, it's a very slow process. That's one of the things that, you know, I was just struck that maybe it takes a generation, you know, maybe, it, maybe it takes two generations. Cause it's not just, you're training that second lieutenant, uh, second lieutenant, and then he becomes a general. Um, you know, it's going to take a couple generations to really change the system of how, uh, military officers and political leaders see these institutional relationships. Generational change brings me back to the pendulum swing that you observe taking place uh you know between the professional officers and adherence to the uh you know the party army concept you highlight something which really struck me uh namely that through the journals and through the schools where they're kind of promulgating and reifying this professional identity it seems like they pushed the pendulum you know to one extreme and they started to equate uh, that they became, you know, enthralled with the American military, and that they seem to narrowly equate the idea of a professional military with advanced technologies and American style, you know, scientific warfare. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe the post-war period. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think definitely this um, pendulum is a good way to put it. You know, this this back and forth. Every every profession. I mean, you have this challenge, right? If you do things, you find uh, that the professionals themselves find super fulfilling and and interesting and sort of cutting edge are you losing touch with sort of the grassroots right in academia for example it's great to be up with the cutting edge theory and research but at the end of the day sometimes you got to go teach a survey course to a bunch of 18 right. 19 year olds right and it's the way you talk is very different and you're absolutely right during the 45 to 49 period one of the things that i, I tried to show was perhaps this these debates you know about um yeah, it's great to to give officers more skill sets on you know how to apply apply armor or artillery, but it can get uh, pretty soon. You can get kind of inside your own head. One of the intriguing things I found, for example, I was up at the National Archives, and it was the the Air Force College. So you know, teaching uh, this was a U.S. military group that was at the you know Chinese Air Force Academy, so to speak, teaching young officers. You know how to go about their duties and plan. Well, the capstone exercise was, uh, and, I, and the maps were in there, uh, and it was wonderful to look at. It was a strategic bombing exercise, you know, telling the students, 
If you were based in, in Britain in like 1944, how would you strategically bomb Germany? Right. That was the scenario, which is, I mean, you talk about that's a complex scenario, you, you know, hundreds of targets, uh, sophisticated industrial infrastructure. You know, so you're really challenging the students to apply sort of the cutting edge theory. Right. How, how to sort of, you know, do you target oil or iron or you know ball bearings or whatever to bring the, the war machine down? How do you structure your your flight plans, but completely not applicable to the situation. In 1947, I mean, Mao Zedong is living in a cave. Uh, there's really not much industry to speak of. The CCP is either getting most of its supplies from capturing them from the KMT or old Japanese supplies or getting supplied by the Russians. There's really no need. Uh, it's cool. It's fun. It's sort of Right. You, if you want to, you know, it's mind expanding, so to speak, but it's not that applicable to the, the facts at hand. And so there was just kind of a mismatch where sometimes professions, I mean, this, this totally happens where you can get, uh, you can go down a road, which isn't always that useful. And that's a case where, you know, it's very, it would be very easy to say the party army is, you know, it's corrupt. It's a bunch of political hacks controlling the military, which can be absolutely true. Uh, but at the same time, if a military is not responsive to political leaders, if a military is not responsive to sort of the social and cultural context, if it's just sort of doing things that it finds to be cool, for want of a better word, well, then it's not really doing its job. And I mean, th there is sort of a, you know, I, I, I think a, a challenge there in that, you know, every profession, uh, whether it's, you know, you're a military officer, whether you're a doctor, uh, whether you're a, a lawyer. You have to have some sort of accountability to a larger, you know, whether that's society or nation. And I'm not sure the officers in the Republic of China were really addressing the facts at hand. I mean, why are they planning a Marine Corps which can execute landings, you know, of Okinawa or Japan at some future conflict when in 1947, I mean, that's Japan is not remotely a threat. I mean, it's it's kind of cool pie in the sky. Oh, well, what about in you know the future war, the future war itis? I mean, we we have the same thing today. I mean, all you have to do is read the war in twenty thirty. We're gonna have these ray guns, and we're gonna have these you know hover tanks. They're, I mean, people are guilty of the same thing. You want to talk about the cool? What's gonna happen in five, ten years? You know, what if cool gadgets and gizmos and sometimes the you know military professionals can lose sight of the bigger picture. And I think perhaps that's that's one of the stories in 45 to 49. Uh, I didn't want to talk about the sort of the civil war directly, but the institution as a whole, I found to be shockingly not engaged. If you read the journals, if you read the textbooks, uh, if you read sort of the curriculum, you wouldn't really know there's a war going on in Manchuria. Uh, you wouldn't really know that there's a, a fairly large-scale civil war taking place, which the KMT is going to lose. And I, I found that to be very odd. Uh, I mean, odd odd where it's like, you know, smart people, well-educated people were just not focused on that at all, rather being focused on their own, own sort of narrow technocratic concerns. Yeah, it seemed like they had almost lost the, uh, the idea of a nation uh, in favor of kind of, you know, almost seems like great power aspirations. Oh, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, I think great power aspirations, you know, they're looking at the Soviet Union, you know, they're saying China, you know, 
1945, the war is over. And, I mean, China at that point is it's one of the major powers. It has a you know a seat at the new UN, and they're saying, you know, finally, you know, respect, recognition. We're going to be, you know, treated as equals if we go to a meeting. You know, it'll be a Chinese delegate, a Soviet delegate, a U.S. delegate, a British delegate. For for a lot of especially militaries in developing countries, I can see where that is a very potent brew to be drinking. And you know they're looking at, and they're not wrong, right? They have these long term challenges with the Soviet Union. They're thinking, hey, you know, Japan is down, but they're smart. In ten fifteen years, they're going to be, uh, you know, doing well again. What happens next? Well, that that's great, but on the other hand, you've got you've got this you know issue going on right now. And uh, if you don't get past the short term, the long term doesn't matter so much. So it's, again, they're humans. They're doing absolutely understandable things. But that is a, a challenge. That is a trap that perhaps institutions, I mean, heck, the U.S. military, right? I mean, it's everyone in the late 1990s is training on how to repel, you know, armored attacks. You know, well, the Cold War had been over for a while. No one is training for counterinsurgency because they don't know that that's coming. Uh, totally understandable, but at the same time, that's a blind spot uh, that the military had. It's easy to uh, be seduced, you know, on an individual and on a national level uh, by the allure of power, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very, very human to, uh, you know, you want to you wanna have these very fascinating discussions, right? You can imagine a seminar room in you know, 1947 at the military academy in, in China. They're talking about, oh, you know, did you read a... You know, Guderian's memoir, Rommel's, you know, infantry. And it's very stimulating. It's like, you know, you're part of this global discussion of sort of what's going on. And, and it's fascinating and it's really, you know, compelling. Uh, at the same time, you know, if you're a, a captain of the Chinese army in 1947, you need to be thinking about, well, if I was going to, you know, attack France with three panzer divisions, well, that's not really the issue at hand. Uh, that's not really the why you're getting your paycheck at the moment. Um, so keep it, maybe keep the focus a little more is what they were, what they should have been told by their professors. But uh, things were getting a little out there. Did this loss of focus allow uh, Shanghai Shek and then his son to kind of reassert the dominance of the political army idea and of political officers? Like, did they see, okay, well, we, you know, in 1949, we lose to the to the communists. And the reason we lost to the communists is because even though we were thinking about all these grandiose ideas, uh, you know, they had the fervor, you know, or the zeal produced by the party and loyalty to the party. And that, you know, kind of the, you know, the martial spirit that we don't possess because we're focused on technology. That was always his critique. And it's interesting. I mean, is that a self-serving, you know, well, he just wants to put his political officers back in units. And that gives him a level of control. Or is there something to that? I mean, if you have a military, <clears throat> again, the challenge of the party army, is it democratic? No. Is it super professional all the time? No. Is it unified? Yes. If you have a policy set by a political leader in a party army, um, there is going to be a probably high degree of cohesion. And if you if you have that, even if you don't have the best training, you can still accomplish quite a bit. And I, I think, you know, Chiang Kai-shek and others like his, his son, Chan ching uh, they definitely knew that the military in the long term, if they were going to remain in control, they had to control the military. Um, but I think they honestly do believe that 
a, a military that is linked with political power uh, is more effective, is more efficient, because you have fewer gaps. I mean, this is, uh, we talk about civil military relations in the United States all the time. Uh, you know, one of the classic cases that's often used is, you know, the firing of MacArthur in 1950, early 51, I guess, in the Korean War, right? Where there's this, you know, Truman has stated, hey, here's our policy. And MacArthur's kind of like, well, I don't know, you know, in a party army, that doesn't happen. In a party army, the connections are much closer. You probably work together for a long period of time. And you know, if you're a general, do not even open your mouth, right? So this is something where um, you can certainly get relieved for maybe corruption or, or you know something like that in a party army. But the idea that you would have sort of these civil military um, maybe gaps, like in MacArthur, or, you know, in Afghanistan, we saw Stanley McChrystal uh, was relieved. Um, that's something that you're you're kind of in in some ways avoiding. So there's there's positives in a sense to the party armor too that I think Chiang Kai Shek um, did understand. I mean, uh, you know, maybe he didn't gloss over the the negatives of the party army, but but yeah, he always said Marshall made me get rid of you know our sort of political system in the army, and that was a huge problem. And till for the rest of his days, I mean, he doesn't die until the 1970s. Uh, he would he would have that common refrain refrain that you know, we have to keep a unified political and military structure unified under one party uh, with one chain of authority uh, that is singular in purpose. Now, as Chiang Kai Shek and his son are reconstituting the army's political wing following the evacuation to Taiwan, the United States is still acting in an advisory role, providing military assistance, and crucially, it's still pushing back against the party army concept. Um, but as you note, in 1954, the U.S. reverses its stance and it appears to come to an, you know, what we say, an ambivalent acceptance of a politically directed ROC army. What caused this change? I, I think you uh, you hit the nail on the head that there's a certain point of time where um, the U.S. recognizes sort of the way the political winds are blowing. So there, there's kind of two answers to that question, though, is first off, the the KMT, um, Chan Chinggua, that's Chiang Kai-shek's son, he understands that it's going to look really bad if we just start assigning random, you know, party bureaucrats to military units. So he, I mean, one of the things he, he understands is that Americans love sort of military schools, you know, this sort of credentialing system, which, you know, you see today, if you're an officer, you go to a branch course, uh, you go to Fort Leavenworth as a, a major, and then you go to the Army War College. So he sets up what he calls a political warfare sort of school. Right. They're not political officers per se. They're, you know, they do things like propaganda, they improve morale. And anytime someone says morale, it's like, well, I mean, the U.S. has chaplains, right? They, we need morale too. I mean, they happen to be, you know, coming at it from a different perspective, but so he kind of, he puts a little bit of gloss on the political officer concept. So Americans can't, you know, stand up and just say, whoa, time out. Who the heck are these guys? The other thing is that the American military um, general Chase, that is William Chase, who'd been the first MAG advisor, um, that is the military assistance advisory group uh, that was sent there from 50 to 53. He was adamant that, you know, I don't even want to talk to these guys. And he would actually, you know, not assign. For example, the RC was like, why don't you sign a couple of Americans at this new political officer academy? He was like, no, I want nothing to do with it. Uh, if they're in a meeting, I'm not going to talk to them. Uh, he'd often say in his notes, you know, why, you know, 
our biggest problem is, you know, if we let these guys into the military, we're, you know, Chinese officers are always going to be looking over their shoulders. Uh, we'll lose the unity of command, which is, you know, a death sentence to any military unit. You can't have two commanders. Uh, he is absolutely adamant. Well, he retires and the next mag advisor is not so adamant. Uh, he's more like, you know, they have their system. We have ours. It doesn't seem to be going away. Uh, it should be said the State Department is always like, look, every country has different rhythms, different routines. It's not our job to sort of, you know, reinvent the wheel. Uh, it's not, you know, we're not an empire. We have to acknowledge the facts at hand. And so after 53, when Chase leaves, there's um, a slow, steady, you know, the number of these officers increases, their power increases, and pretty soon they're essentially dominating sort of promotions, right? Because you got a political officer who's going to check things. Well, the person who checks things also sort of makes the list for promotions, huge amount of power. Um, and they are the point of contact with the KMT. So if you're leaving the military, maybe you get a job with the KMT, another reason you want to be close with your political officer. And really after a couple of years, um, the sort of infrastructure that Chongqing builds up is able to uh, really take control of a lot of the military and being isolated. Uh, suddenly, Jen, again, great, I think, military commander, military trainer of men, not the greatest politician doesn't see this coming. And uh, he's sort of hung out to dry uh, in 55 when this political officer sort of um, reemerges. Uh, again, the the tide has come in for the political officers by 55. When I was reading towards the end of the book, uh, you know, you bring up, you talk about the 1954 Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty. Is that kind of the the culmination of uh, of the MAG and also maybe the State Department and the Department of Defense kind of realizing that everybody has their own system? And if that's kind of the blueprint going forward, is there a lesson that we can learn from this pragmatic assessment of uh, you know how we go about building uh, strong security partnerships? Yeah, it's um, so the first part of your question is sort of the 1954. I definitely think there's a kind of watershed moment in sort of 53, 54. So Chase leaves General Chase, who'd been a really, really um, dynamic figure in sort of setting up this military, the MAG structure with Sunli Jen uh, and sort of making it capable. Part of the reason it was, you know, there was a lot of focus on just sort of the military aspects. The Korean War is still going on until mid-53. So there's always, you know, are we going to need to deploy these guys to Korea, to the Korean front? Are we going to, um, you know, the phrase, you know, retake the mainland? Is that ever going to come to fruition? Uh, after the end of the Korean War, you know, Eisenhower definitely has a different view. Kind of his, his idea is, you know, don't, if we can stop being involved, I mean, negotiates the settlement in Korea, Taiwan Straits crises, tries to keep that sort of on the straight and narrow. You know, Eisenhower famously does not intervene at Dien Bien Phu. Uh, so the idea of retaking the mainland, the idea of deploying, uh, ROC troops in Vietnam never really gets off the ground. So the idea that you really need a military raring to go by, by the end of 53, 54 is kind of, it's tapered off a little bit, right? So it's, yeah, we need, we'd like them to be experts, but it's like, you don't need your, your varsity team, so to speak, suddenly Jen, um, because you're going to be, I have to fight tonight. And the, the treaty is part of that. The treaty sort of takes some of the the, the fears out of the equation for the ROC. Uh, so they have a little more flexibility, right? I mean, if, if suddenly Jen is the indispensable man 
because you're going to be at war next week. You can't get rid of him. After 54, if you're a little less worried, well, he's not so indispensable. He's a little more dispensable at that point. Um, so moving forward, what does that what does that mean? Uh, I, I think the the general trends of the American sort of effort with the Republic of China military in 42 to 55 are largely sound in that American national policy was you know, to support an ally first in World War II, then to try to develop China as a responsible stakeholder sort of in that 45 to 49, and then in the Cold War period to remain having Taiwan as sort of a, a U.S. ally security partner. For most of that time, the U.S. has been able to accomplish those goals um, through military assistance, advising, through working with the particularly the officer corps uh, in a manner that's low cost, uh, low number of casualties, and fairly effective. I mean, by certainly there's some problems during the Civil War uh, from 45 to 49, but you have to say during, during the early Cold War, Taiwan was a model military force, uh, capable, effective, U.S. supplied equipment and training, but we did not have, unlike in Korea, you know, there were no ground combat units ever really deployed to Taiwan. Uh, with the exception of some air defense troops briefly during the Taiwan Straits crisis. So, I mean, if if that's what you're going for, I mean, a light footprint, that's a pretty clear success. I mean, that's a pretty clear uh, win for the United States. You know, the challenge is, do we also want, when we're developing militaries, and this was a challenge during the Cold War, right? if we develop these militaries, which have a lot of power and influence, how do we, how do we hopefully get them to the point where they're supporting democracies or the military is democratically inclined. You know, there's a military coup in South Korea in 1961, Park Chung-hee. Uh, there are other military coups. I mean, in, in Taiwan, are we supporting, did the United States support an authoritarian state? I mean, and it's it's tough to argue that, you know, yes, there was sort of democratic trappings, but uh, this is a essentially one-party KMT state. Um, how far can you go to sort of push back against that? Because you know, in the long run, um, that's probably not the best for United States security interests to have one-party states. And certainly there's a moral critique of that, uh, which you see later in the Cold War during, you know, for example, the Carter presidencies. I I get back to that. I, I mentioned it earlier, you know, it's a generational issue that I, I'm not sure any any American military officer is always at a disadvantage because they have less understanding of the language, the culture. The political dynamics. I mean, Vinegar Joe Stilwell. Yes, he spoke Chinese. Yes, he'd served in in China before, but he's always a foreigner. He's always an outsider. So the the idea that he, you know, and I I know that, you know, we we want things to to happen quickly, uh, is 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 good. I mean, that's laudable, right? We want countries to become uh, prosperous and democratic and stable. Uh, but I I think. You know, really, a more realistic time frame is you know these are decade long programs or generational long programs, and the United States has a uh, in my in my belief is that they have a good toolkit which we've been working on since the forties with militaries. The challenge is you know how do you keep that going for you know two decades so that you know those military officers you're training today at age twenty two in a generation or in their fifties. And, you know, they're, 
they're okay with a more robust democratic presence or, you know, two-party or multi-party democracies. They don't see their role as, you know, launching coups. They see their role as disinterested public servants. Uh, I, I think, I think that's a challenge that, you know, you know, that's very hard in our, our political system of four-year presidential terms, you know, congressional members are elected for either two or six years. Military officers often serve in these positions for, you know, it's, it's maybe a two-year rotation, sometimes a three-year rotation. Um, but I, I think the the template is sound. The, the template established in places like the Republic of China, um, it may be a bumpy road, but in the long run, I, I think what we see in places like um, Taiwan today uh, and in South Korea today, definitely. I mean, there's another case where, you know, a very bumpy road, uh, but uh, it hasn't always been a lot of fun. But uh, we've managed to work it out, and it's it's, I think, born fruit. And it's uh, could we get there quick more quickly? Probably. Uh, I'm not maybe smart enough to answer those sort of sociological questions. Uh, but the military relationship, uh, the military relationship the United States first fostered with the Republic of China military, I think is a is a good topic to study because these questions are are not going away uh, in the 21st century. And, and I hope that we can learn from the lessons of folks like Vinegar Joe Stilwell or Sunley Jen uh, to make a more um, bilateral, even-handed, um, efficient uh, partnerships as we move into the, you know, the next 20, 30 years, whatever challenges they may be. Well, Eric, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Just two final questions that uh, on the Military History Channel, we ask all our guests. The first is, what project do you anticipate working on next? Uh, I've actually got a book in the works on um, kind of carrying over on this on the 1950s, looking at uh, military advising more generally in East Asia, looking at uh, J- Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, Taiwan in the, the latter part of the 50s, and then South Vietnam. I, I had so much material um, sort of left over that I'm, I'm hoping to. Uh, I had a plan on doing a Cold War book, but I was really struck by Eisenhower, I think, as a military officer. Um, I don't know if you know this, but he actually served in the Philippines and helped set up the Philippine military in the 1930s, working for Douglas MacArthur. He really adopts this model. And one of his big programs during the Cold War is essentially, I don't like American soldiers going to <laughs> get killed in these you know, countries that where most Americans don't know where they are on the map. I'd much rather, Eisenhower's approaches, I'd much rather drop off a whole bunch of military advisors, a whole bunch of equipment, and you know, let that be sort of you know setting the stage uh, for things. So I, I'm hoping in the next couple of years to to have sort of I don't know if you call it a follow up to this volume, but uh, something on military advising in East Asia. Cool. And lastly, um, is there anything that you're currently reading, watching, or listening to that our audience might want to check out? Uh, yeah, I think what was I just reading? Um, more of a diplomatic book. By more than providence, I want to say it's Michael Michael Green, a, a wonderful book about uh, the U.S. presence in East Asia. Uh, one second, I'm going to Google no, this sure. real no quickly problem. so I get the name right. Um, because the the U.S. in East Asia, I, I think there's you only have to watch the news these days uh, to see that there's such a yeah Michael Green by more than providence grand strategy in American power in the Asia Pacific since 1783. And I, I think there's, there's so much interest in East Asia. A lot of times it's focused on oh, the South China Sea, uh, which, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on or, you know, trade disputes, another topic I don't know a lot on. Uh, 
but but one of the values of history is that the United States has been deeply involved, uh, really since the foundation, in, whether it be with trade, whether it be with uh, missionaries, large missionary movement uh, during the 19th century, whether it be you know the U.S. presence in the Philippines, uh, the U.S. presence certainly since 1945, and a lot of these issues, um, the historical legacies of those, continue to be so important, uh, so important, especially for the people of East Asia. Um, and oftentimes we we might lose sight of that in sort of a diplomatic history courses that are focused on other parts of the world. And, and that's really, I, I think, uh, that would be the book if I had to recommend to someone that I've read recently that really I found to be impressive. Uh, impressive both in its focus and its scholarship. Well, Eric, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been great to chat with you. And uh, I you know, I, I think this is, uh, I appreciate your, your effort to bring some of these issues to uh, uh, the public eye. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Scott Lipkowitz. Thank you for listening. <laughs>